right, Genesis 2, beginning with verse 4, reading through verse 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and in the gold, I'm sorry, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for these words that you've been pleased to record and preserve for our reading, for our instruction, for our salvation. And Father, we ask that, Lord, you would bless us this morning as we study these words, as we study these doctrines. And Father, we do call on you. We are utterly in need of your grace Should we profit from this? Should we understand this? Should we be changed by this? So, Father, we ask that you would bless us uh, uh, this way in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Last week, some of you remember, we went behind the curtain of time, if you will, back before to use the language of the Apostle Paul, back before the ages began, Uh, It has been God's good pleasure to give us uh, glimpses, uh, snapshots, if you will, of what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were setting out to do uh, before the foundation of the world. Uh, For example, in 2 Timothy 1.9, the Apostle Paul tells us that God, quote, saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It's a little snapshot back before the realm of time. Uh, In another place, Paul says, namely in Titus 1 and verse 2, he speaks of, quote, eternal life, eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. He's promising this before the foundation of the world, before the realm of time, before the ages began. 
another quote, only this time from Jesus during his earthly ministry. He would speak in parables about things that have, uh, quote, been hidden since the foundations of the world or hidden since the foundation of the world. End of quote. That quote comes from Matthew 13, verse 35. Now, I could go on. We could list many other uh, verses that give us these little glimpses, these little snapshots uh, out of eternity. These little portals where we can look outside of the realm of time and see what the Father and Son and Holy Spirit have set out to do for our salvation. Um, and last week as we'd done that, we discovered that there was a covenant made between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In our scripture memory verse this morning, we read of the eternal covenant in Hebrews 13, 20, didn't we? This eternal covenant, namely the Father choosing to give a church to His Son and the Son agreeing to come in the person of Jesus Christ uh, to redeem the church. And the Father, in turn, agreeing to uh, preserve the Son and to empower the Son with all of the grace and empowerment that He needs to accomplish the task. And the Holy Spirit being active uh, in applying this empowerment and imp applying this grace to the Son so that the salvation that's in Christ Jesus could be uh, accomplished. Now, uh, please keep in mind as as I talk about these things, I'm really speaking in terms of what we sometimes call an economic distribution. That probably doesn't mean a lot to you. Uh, that may mean something to some of you. But um, let me put it another way. Listening to all this, a person could easily get the impression uh, that the Father is uh, greater than the Son and that the Son maybe perhaps is greater than the Holy Spirit. Uh, but those of you who've been studying on Wednesday nights where they say, no, 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 I remember the catechism question about the Trinity, and no, 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 yeah, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in power and glory. And if you're saying that, you're 100% correct, and it's important that we remember that. So why am I speaking this way? We speak this way because God has revealed Himself this way. Why has God revealed Himself this way? Because He has condescended down to our level to speak baby talk to us. If I might use the language of the Reformers, Calvin was fond of speaking that way. Luther was fond of speaking that way. And it makes a lot of sense, especially those of, of you who are mothers and grandmothers. Uh, you, you probably wouldn't play a tape of what I just said to uh, little Hayden just yet. Uh, would you? Uh, it might be a little early for, for him to get that. Uh, instead, what do we do? Uh, well, we attempt to speak to our little ones in ways that they can understand. Don't we? And that's what God does with us. He stoops down to speak with us in ways that we might understand. And uh, uh, that is what is going on as we speak this way. Because otherwise, I think this covenant would be imperceptible to us. The idea of a father giving the son uh, 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 a church and the son agreeing to redeem the church and etc. I think would hardly be a, uh, perceptible to us. Now, last time we saw that the that Christ's church is chosen before the foundation of the world. We said that the church is saved in Christ Jesus. We also said that the church is safe in the hands of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lastly, we said that the church is cherished. I think that's good to keep in our minds as we think about the that eternal covenant that we're we're chosen. It's not an accident, and it's not simply a matter of our decision to come to Christ. There's more to it than that. If we're in Christ this morning, we did indeed make a decision to come to Him, didn't we? 
But that's not it. See, I mean, you, there's much more going on in that. Why did you make the decision to come to Christ? Because back before the foundations of the world, back before time even began, the Father had chosen you. He had chosen to save you. He had chosen to keep you safe in the hands of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you're cherished. You're truly cherished. And I'm emphasizing that because this morning I want to go one step further. I want to, I want to go to the next step. After the covenant of redemption, I want to go into the covenant of works. And as I said in my pastoral prayer, it's easy when we look at the covenant of works, uh, God creating Adam, putting him into this probationary period in the garden and saying, listen, uh, all this stuff is yours, but stay away from this particular tree here. Uh, for when the day you eat of this tree, uh, then, you know, it's lights out for you. We could get the impression, the wrong impression of who God is. And that's why we need to constantly apply the cross to this. Uh, that will hopefully make more sense in a few minutes. As I've already said this morning, we move from the eternal covenant of redemption to what we call the covenant of works. If you look in our text of verse 4, uh, there's a, a phrase, I don't have time to go into it, but it's an important phrase if you're reading Genesis, the generations. You'll find that phrase. If you read Genesis in long swatches uh, at a time, you'll see that word generation appearing in many places. Uh, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. In verse 8 and following, we see the creation of the Garden of Eden. Uh, we see that it was a paradise. And if I might stop, just to digress, just for a moment uh, about that. Um, when we look at our culture and we even look at our own lives, what are we busy doing uh, what are we busy spending? We, we go to nursing school or we go to trade school or we go to places so we can get a good job, so that we can provide a good living, so that we can make life as, as best as we possibly can, right? And I'm not condemning that practice. Uh, and, and I'm not speaking about covetousness and worldliness. I'm not speaking to all that right now. I'm just merely saying, what are we on about? We're on about trying to make life as good as we can, aren't we? I might even say we're, we're trying to create our own little paradise, are we not? Now why is that? Why do we do that? It's because we were created to dwell in a paradise. Man is created, but before he was created, a paradise was created. And he was put in it. And as we think about the, content, the covenant of works, we need to be mindful of that. This really isn't a digression, you know. As I, I think this through even now, right now. I, I think this is important that we understand this. God has created this, this, this paradise that none of us could conceive or comprehend currently right now. And he's created man and he's put him in this paradise. Uh, when we look at verse 15... We see this, uh, this whole thing. The Lord God took the man, he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
And as we're thinking about the, along the lines of paradise, notice that Adam is created to work. Created to work. And if we have the right idea of paradise, I think in too many of our minds, the our idea of paradise is on a hammock, you know, swinging, you know, with the breeze in our face and maybe, you know, some kind of uh, drink in our hand and maybe along the beach somewhere, there's just, it's leisure. But um, that needs to be challenged. Um, Adam was created to work. Work is part of paradise. That's the point I'm trying to make here. Now, some of us might be thinking about tomorrow morning when we get up and we start our week and we think, and some of us go to work this afternoon and we think paradise, work, really? Well, after the fall, work is cursed, isn't it? It's frustrated. And uh, uh, that, that's, that's cause of the rebellion. That's cause of the fall. But let's not get in our minds that work is a curse in and of itself. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's part of being in paradise. And, uh, you know, just mind me a couple more sentences. You know, when we, when, when we don't work, that actually creates a lot of problems, doesn't it? Uh, there's, and I'm not talking about retirement. Everyone's, listen, if you're retired right now, I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when we, like when we don't work for long periods of time, uh, during a, a period of time in our lives where we should be working, uh, we don't succeed at anything. We don't accomplish anything. We don't have much of a purpose. And that creates a lot of problems, doesn't it? It creates emotional problems. It can lead to depression. It's, uh, there's all kinds of problems that that can cause. Idleness gets us into trouble. It creates spiritual problems, emotional problems, mental problems, even physical problems. Uh, but back to our text, verse 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, I, I think that these verses are pretty familiar probably to all of us. Um, let's look at them. In these verses, we see God condescending, if you will, to enter into a covenant with Adam. In your bulletin, there's an insert. And Donald has been so kind to be able to squeeze in a couple of things for us. He even got the scripture verses in there, which I, I would suggest you look these up as you have leisure. But you'll notice in your little in your bulletin insert, See, it says Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, this is probably familiar to most of you, but in the event that's not familiar to anyone who's here this morning, um, the, the ARP, we, we are a confessional church. What that means is what we believe has been stated very clearly and actually in great detail uh, in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, it's a very, we're a very old church. We go all the way back to the, we can, we can trace our line all the way back to the apostles themselves. Um, and the Westminster Confession of Faith is not scripture. It's not, this is not scripture. Uh, we don't look at it as scripture. What we look at it is a teaching vehicle that teaches us what scripture, uh, that informs us of what scripture teaches. Uh, we believe that it's biblical. If you look at WC where it says WCF 7, one, that is chapter 7 in the Confession of Faith, and it's uh, section number 1. If you might read along with me, uh, the, it reads, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to Him as their Creator, yet they could never have any fruition of Him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, 
which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. Uh, So what we have going on here, okay, God has created the human race, right? He has created, created us as reasonable creatures. I mean, we realize we've been created. We're capable of understanding the fact that we've been created. And because we've been created, and this is an important thing to keep in mind when you're ministering to people, when you're, when you're wanting to share the gospel to folks in our culture, it'd be good to start with this. Uh, we've been created by God. Because we've been created by God, we're being sustained by God. So we're created by God. We're sustained by God. Therefore, we owe everything to God. And that, that can be an eye-opening thing in our culture. Because I don't think this thing is going on in many of our heads in our culture. Even in people in the church, for that matter. It might not be going on in our heads. So let's preach it to ourselves before we speak it to anyone. We've been created by God. Our lives are gifts from His gracious hand. And the sustenance of our life, our lives being sustained, and uh, the fact that we, that we, you know, as our bellies growl, we have something to eat, something to put in them. Uh, that's all part of God's sustaining us. As a consequence of this, uh, we owe everything to Him. Uh, we owe all allegiance and uh, obedience uh, to God. But notice the confession, seven and, uh, chapter 7 and section 1, speaks of this idea in the third line down of blessedness and reward. Blessedness and reward. In fact, it says we could never have any fruition of Him as our blessedness and reward. Think of that for a moment. That God would be our blessedness. That God would be our reward. That uh, Let me put it another way. That God would give us Himself to enjoy. What greater gift could we find under the tree than that? What gift could exceed God himself? What gift could excel over the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? This is the gift that God has given us. He's given us life. And if we might think of the Garden of Eden, he has created a paradise. He's created man. He's put him in the paradise. And he's given himself to the man. And the confession is showing us that he has expressed all of this by way of covenant, by way of covenant. Now, look at the second section in your bulletin, the second paragraph. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So what is the confession teaching us here? It's teaching us that when God created Adam, he entered into a covenant of works with him, right? A covenant that was conditioned upon perfect obedience. Now, uh, let's pause right there for a moment. Somebody may, some of you who are familiar with Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 might be thinking to yourself, okay, this sounds reasonable, but there's a problem. And the problem is this, the word covenant isn't in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The word covenant doesn't appear there. That's correct. It doesn't appear there. In fact, the word covenant doesn't appear until Genesis 6. That's the first time we find covenant. And for this reason, uh, many have denied that there's a covenant of works 
in place in the Garden of Eden. I want to speak to that this morning because this is an important objection that uh, we need to keep in mind. In 2 Samuel 7, a covenant is made with David, and I'll just read two, three verses for you. Um, uh, God promises David, quote, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now that's 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. Now there's no mention of the word covenant there. In fact, there's no mention of the word covenant in 2 Samuel 7. Yet, Psalm 89, verses 3 to 4, says, you, the antecedent of you, there's the Lord. Okay, the Lord has said, quote, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. End of quote. No mention of covenant in 2 Samuel 7. But that doesn't mean there isn't a covenant covenant in 2 Samuel 7. Okay? Now, in the same way, in Hosea 6, 7, it reads, quote, But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Okay, now what's the context of that particular verse? Well, the context is in Hosea. If you're familiar, maybe less of us are familiar with Hosea. I don't know. But in that context, God is calling Israel to repentance. And they're demonstrating our hard-heartedness in regards to that. And uh, listen to a couple of verses that I'll read. The Lord says in verse 4 of Hosea 6, He says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. You know, I, I, on the side, I was reading Hosea a few months ago and came to this verse just in my own devotional time and was really struck by that. Your love is like a morning cloud. How often our love is towards God is like a morning cloud. It just evaporates and is gone in no time. But it, back to the text. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth and my judgment goes forth as light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Here's a clear reference to Adam's transgression in the Garden of Eden. And it's referred to as a covenant. It's referred to as a covenant. The second argument that I would give is that we find all the ingredients of a covenant in, in, in uh, Genesis 2. And I realize this is some heady stuff. Uh, keep your thinking caps on just for a few more minutes and I'll put this together, okay? But we find the ingredients of a covenant in Genesis 2. What are the ingredients of a covenant? Well, if you're going to make a covenant, you're going to have to have parties. You're going to have to have parties. In the case of the covenant that God makes in Genesis 2, the parties are God and Adam. So the covenant is between God and Adam, and in a few minutes we're going to see not only Adam by himself, but Adam as he represents all of us. Okay, So the parties are God and Adam. Secondly, we have conditions. What is the condition? If you look again with me to Genesis 2, 16 and 17, 
The Lord God commands the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, except for this one tree, right? This one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now let's flesh that out a little bit. Because it kind of sounds like, okay, there's, in fact, I can remember early, early on when I first started teaching on this, I used to say things like this. It would be easy to be a lawyer in this day because you only had one law you had to get down, and that's this law right here. And you could be a lawyer. You have all, you have it all. Well, it's not quite accurate. Uh, Adam had the law of God written on his heart. And we're going we're gonna to study that in Romans 2 when we get there in the upcoming months. He had the law of God written on his heart. How do we know that? Because Adam was holy and upright, walking face to face with God. He understood the law. He understood it in a positive way. He delighted in the law. He delighted in all of those commandments. He delighted in all of this. Okay. Um, And here, what verse 17 is doing is it's kind of serving as a focal point. It's serving as... um, uh, really as a, a place, uh, a crowning jewel is what I put in my notes. Uh, the crowning jewel, if you will, of Adam's obedience really finds its place in his um, abstinence from this particular tree. I don't think we should think of these trees as having any magical qualities about them. In fact, please don't do that. I, I think really in many ways it's just an arbitrary, it's just a tree. God just said, listen, okay, this tree... This tree here. I want you to stay away from that tree. This really becomes the crowning jewel of Adam's obedience to God. Uh, Okay, you want me to stay away from that tree? All right, I'll stay away from the tree. My whole entire obedience to God, my entire allegiance to God is really demonstrated. Not so much in that I'm lawless in every other respect, but that I'm staying away from the tree. God told me to stay away from the tree. Okay, I'll stay away from the tree. Well, what happened? Did Adam stay away from the tree? No. And that speaks to promises. Let me speak to the promises. We have parties, we have conditions, we have promises. If you look at Genesis 2, 16 and 17 again, uh, here we, we have a promise of life. Oh, someone might say, wait a second, I don't see the word life here. In fact, I see the opposite. I see death. Death is promised in verse 17, isn't it? Well, death is promised for disobedience. But what does that imply for obedience? It implies life. If you, if, you, if you eat from the tree, you're going to die. But if you don't eat from the tree, what's going to happen? Life. Life. And um, uh, so that's what we have here. We, we, we actually, we have, we have the promise of life. If You know, Paul says in many places, Romans 10.5 is one of the places, He says that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. You maybe have read verses like that before and say, what in the world does that mean? Well, the the Apostle Paul is talking about this very concept here. Uh, Adam would find, really, in essence, he has the promise of life by obeying God. Right? Does that make sense? By his obedience and allegiance to God, he has the promise of life. 
Um, and we know that Adam in the Garden of Eden was existing in a probationary period. I mean, it was kind of a, a pro, you know, you get a new job and, and you got this like first 90 days, you know, where you're kind of on probation. Your health benefits don't kick in yet. Nothing does because you're on a probationary period to see how you do. Adam is in the garden on this probationary period. Is he going to stay away from the tree? Well, if he stays away from the tree, uh, the promise is life. And it's not just continued existence. It's a promise of life that's in a state that's greater than what he currently enjoys. Now, someone might say, now how in the world can you get all that? I don't see all of that in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. We get that from Romans 5. From Romans 5, where the Apostle Paul describes Jesus as the second Adam. When Jesus saves us and promises us eternal life, that life that's promised to us is a greater life than what Adam enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. We're not being saved and ushered into a probationary period where we're to abstain from a tree. We're actually being ushered into the very presence of God to where we will enjoy life in its fullness. Does that make sense? So we have this promise of life. Now, fourthly, we have a penalty. If Adam disobeys, what will happen? He'll he'll die. Uh, And that's exactly what happened. He died. Now, I got one more point to, to put together here very briefly, and I'll wrap this up. And that is the representative nature of all this. What do I mean by representative nature of all this? Well, Adam simply doesn't represent himself in this covenant of works. He's not there just representing himself. He's representing all of humanity in the garden. His victory is a victory for all humanity. His failure is a failure for all humanity. How do we know this? Look at your scripture memory verse. See where it says one trespass led to what? It led to condemnation for who? For all of us. Adam represents us in the garden. When Adam fails in the garden, Adam falls into uh, darkness and depravity. And when Adam falls into darkness and depravity, we all fell with him. Okay, let's pray. Some of you have your heads bowed. And I don't mean to trick you into bowing your heads. But if we stop right here, you can't pray. I can't pray. Because we don't have any access to God. We're in darkness. We're in depravity. There is no channel opened up There's no repair of the breach that's been made. We don't have access. That's why this is so important. I realize it's difficult, especially when you're hearing it for the first time. And you think, wow, this is heavy stuff. I understand that, but we've got to wrestle through it if we're going to understand the gospel. If we stop right here, we don't have a prayer. We don't have any access to God. Something has to be done. And what is that something? Another Adam has to come. A second Adam. 
And the good news is another Adam came. And the second Adam, Paul tells us in Romans 5, is Jesus. And what does he do? He gets into that old covenant of works where Adam failed. And he enters into that covenant of works for over 30 years. And he is obedient in thought, word, and deed in that covenant for more than 30 years. Why? Many of you are familiar with my little stick figure and cross um, illustration. You have the cross and you have a little stick figure. It's because it's about all the better I can draw is little stick figures. I do okay with that. Um, The stick figure is us. The cross, of course, is the cross. And my stick figure cross illustration is showing that when we put our faith in Christ in a saving way, all of our sins are put on the cross. They are credited to Jesus on the cross. And by virtue of his death in our place, in our stead, he takes those sins away from us. Correct? That's the easiest part of this, I think, it is, uh, is for us to understand. But that's only half of the gospel. The other half of the gospel is that other arrow that we draw from the cross to the stick figure. And what is, that, what is that arrow from the cross to the stick figure? That is the perfect righteousness of Jesus being credited to us. If we're going to get to heaven, we've got to be good. I have an old friend of mine who used to say, I, I want to go to heaven, but I can't be good. That was a great line. And he would do that to draw people's attention. You know, I can't be good. And he's a pretty righteous guy, actually. And he said, I can't be good. I want to go to heaven, but I can't be good. Well, what does that imply? You can't be good either, and I can't be good either. We want to go to heaven, but we can't be good. Well, the only way we're going to get to heaven is to be good. But we can't be good. If we're going to get there by a covenant of works, we're going to have to be perfect. Absolutely perfect in thought, word, and deed. That means none of us is going to get to heaven by a covenant of works because we can't be good. Not for an hour can we be good. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus was good. Actually, perfectly good. And in entering into that covenant for 30 plus years, being perfect in thought, word, and deed, He merited a righteousness. He accomplished a righteousness. He made that other arrow possible. The arrow that goes from the cross to the stick figure. It's made possible by Christ's act of obedience in our place. You see? See how much you're cherished? I mean, we see a couple of things when we look at the cross. I mean, we see... We, see, we can see how deep of a mess we're in. Our situation is so bad that the second person of the Trinity had to take on a human body, enter into a covenant of works, and walk perfectly in this covenant of works for more than 30 years in, in perfection, in absolute perfection, in thought, word, and deed. So that He could offer us righteousness that we don't have. That's why this is important to grasp and to wrestle with. 
And this is, this is really the covenant of redemption working itself out into the covenant of grace. And I could say it this way. It's, it's the covenant of redemption working its way out into the covenant of works. Now, next week, I hope all this will even become more familiar when we go into the covenant of grace. Till then, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for this uh, great word that, Father, you have given us, for this great gospel that you have given us. And Father, here we see just what you've had to do in order to accomplish salvation for us. And we see, really, we see Jesus so magnified as we think that he has lived 30 plus years in absolute perfection, that he would accomplish a righteousness that could be ours by faith. Oh, Father, what a great promise we have here. Uh, What a certain promise we have here of salvation. Help us to understand this, Father, for our minds, they need raised by your grace that we might that we might meet these things, that we might understand these things, that, uh, that, Father, these connections could be made, these dots could be connected. So, Father, we do pray for grace for each one of us that we would come to understand these things. In Jesus' precious name, amen.